Good morning. Great to see you as always. Uh, yes, as Ron said, here we are at the end. I can't believe it, actually. It doesn't seem like that long ago we started this origin series, but we're here at the end, which is this journey that we've been taking through Genesis 1 to 11. These really, truly foundational chapters in the Bible that explain a lot about why the world is as it is, both the good things and the bad things that we see. And we've covered some enormous themes, huge themes of creation, uh, humanity, work and rest, sin, evil, hope, salvation and judgment, suffering, covenant, massive themes, these threads that run through the whole history of the world that are introduced in these chapters that we've been looking at. And it's these first 11 chapters that also frame all the problems that the rest of the Bible then sets about resolving from chapter 12 onwards, where we see the story of God's salvation and redemption starting to unfold. It was already hinted at back in Genesis 3, but then from chapter 12 onwards, we see it starting to unfold, the redemption that he's bringing to the earth and to mankind. And today we're coming into chapters 10 and 11, but mainly focusing on the beginning of chapter 11. And this is where we see the origins of nations, but it's actually about a lot more than that as we'll see as we go on today. But here, it's like we get a glimpse of the whole world, a last glimpse of the big picture, the big cosmic overview of the whole world before we zoom in in chapter 12 onto one man and one family, one nation, through which salvation and blessing would come to the whole world. Because for God, it has always been about the whole world. And I think this is a reminder, this last chapter we see here before we zoom in, for God, it's always been about all nations. So after the flood, as we heard last week, God had said to Noah and his family, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. It's the same command he had given to Adam and Eve previously. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. And it's exactly that that we seem to be seeing in chapter 10. Chapter 10 seems to be describing exactly that thing being fulfilled. I'm not going to read through chapter 10. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see that there's lots of names and descendants and genealogies. I'm not going to read it, uh, read it through, but to give a very brief overview, because it is important, chapter 10 is entitled The Table of Nations, and it describes the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, this family that emerged from the ark after the flood. And each of the names we have in chapter 10 represent a different people group, that spread out into their own territories, into their own nations, with their own languages. And the final verse of chapter 10 says, these are the clans of Noah's sons. All these names, 70 names listed in chapter 10, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, from these names, from these people groups, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. This is where the nations come from. This is where diversity comes from, and it's clearly part of God's design. You know, diversity is not just some evolutionary accident. Diversity is a good thing. Diversity is not a problem. It's been turned into a problem by sinful human beings, but actually it's a gift. And it was always God's purpose for the earth to be filled with people reflecting the glory of God, and that's partly reflected in our diversity But I'm not going to say too much about that whole theme today because actually in February and March next year we're going to be doing a series called Invited which is very much going to focus in on the whole theme of diversity. But chapter 10, as it follows on from chapter 9 and everything we see there, it seems to show the obedience of the post-flood people fulfilling God's command to fill the earth. That's what it seems to show. But then chapter 11 shows us that that wasn't the case at all. 
Because although chapter 11, in terms of chapters, follows on from chapter 10, it actually comes chronologically before the events of chapter 10. We know because it starts by saying the whole world had one language. And chapter 10 is about the whole world having all these different languages. So clearly chapter 11 is chronologically before chapter 10. So chapter 10, having described the spreading out of all these nations, well then chapter 11 describes how this actually came about. It's kind of like a flashback. So let's read chapter 11 verses 1 to 9. Very familiar story for us. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. There's a symbolism in here of moving eastward, by the way. If you remember when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they lived east of Eden. And when Cain was expelled, when he was judged, he moved east. And so there's a symbolism of separation, increasing separation from God. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It's pretty clear. This is is direct and willful disobedience to God's command. God said, be scattered, be spread. They say, no, we don't want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel or Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. It's a familiar story to us. But I wonder how you picture this story. I know I used to picture it as this kind of big, vast, uh, plain, empty plain with this kind of solitary tower. Like, a bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You know, a cylindrical style tower but very, very high. So there's kind of clouds around the top of it. That's kind of how I used to picture this. But of course they weren't just building a tower. They were building a city. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. They're building a city, I guess a bit like a gated community for them to gather and stay safe inside behind the walls of the city instead of spreading out, fulfilling God's command to fill the earth. And then the tower itself is most likely to have been what's called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat looks like a bit like this. That's an example of a ziggurat. It's typical of that area in Mesopotamia, this this kind of building. It's like a humanly created mountain with a shrine at the top. The idea being that the higher you are, the closer you get to heaven. It's designed to give humanity access to heaven, but also to be a stairway for the gods to come down into their temple. In fact, the word Babel or Babel is a play on words because in the Arcadian language of Babylon... It means gateway to the gods, and that's what they were trying to build, isn't it? A gateway to the gods, a god in their own image, a god of their own making. But that's what they were seeking to build. But in Hebrew, the word means confusion. And so we have these people trying to build this city, this ziggurat, in direct defiance of God's command, and in order to make a name for themselves, for it to stand as a monument to man and man's achievements. But the thing is, God created man to find his greatest joy in the worship of God. It's just how we were made, it's how we were created. 
But man says, no, 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 no. I don't want to worship you. I want to worship myself. I want to focus on myself. Well, God said, be, be fruitful, spread out, fill the earth. And the man says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. We want to gather. We want to stay here and just be safe. And so we see that chapter 10, the events of chapter 10, had nothing to do with the obedience of the people. It was all about disobedience and pride. And then God's subsequent judgment that actually reversed everything that man had decided to do. Let me show you the structure of this text because it shows us this this reversal that goes on. There's a a very intentional structure here. It's called a chiastic structure. You knew that, didn't you? You've already spotted this. It's a chiastic structure. It's widely used. I make myself sound very knowledgeable. I've just found all this out myself, okay? It's widely used in Hebrew literature, and um, it's where you get a mirroring going on around a pivotal point. So there's a central hinge point in the story, and then kind of corresponding parts of the story that mirror one another, that correspond to one another. So let me show you what I mean. So the story starts in verse 1. By the way, the verse numbers, of course, were not part of the original manuscripts, but for our purposes, verse 1 starts with the whole world having one language. That is mirrored and reversed at the end of the story in verse 9 with the Lord confusing the language of the whole world. So at the start, whole world, one language. At the end, whole world, confused language. Okay. Then you take a step in both sides. Verse 2 says the people gather and settle in that place. But then a step in from the end, verse 8, the Lord scatters them from that place. It's corresponding and it's reversed. Verse 3, they said to each other, they, they understand each other, they've got an understanding, but verse 7, they don't understand each other. It's stepping in, corresponding, another step in, in verse 3 again, they say, come, let's make bricks. In verse 7, God says, come, and it's the same Hebrew construction, come, let us confuse, and actually the Hebrew words for let us make bricks and let us confuse are also extremely similar, which for the Hebrew audience makes this correlation and contrast even more obvious. Verse four, a city and a tower. Let's build a city and a tower. Verse five, let's go and look at this city and tower. You see the contrasting perspectives of man and God. But the pivotal point at the center of the story on which the whole story turns is at the start of verse five, but the Lord came down. The Lord came down. Now that has no mirror. That's right in the middle, has no parallel phrase. That is the pivot around which this whole story, this complete reversal in the story happens and this might seem a bit obscure to us this kind of structure but for the Hebrews this was very common for them they would have got this they would have seen it they would have spotted it they would know what point the author is trying to make but the Lord came down it's important for what I'll go into a little bit later it's kind of funny actually this phrase but the Lord came down I mean they're building this ziggurat as a stairway for the gods, their gods, to come down. And the true God does come down. I don't think they were expecting that to happen. And there is a very intentional irony going on. There's a mockery going on here by saying that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. We see a contrast in uh, man's perspective and in God's perspective. This tremendously impressive tower, as man sees it, is clearly not all that impressive after all. Because, of course... God is everywhere and he knows everything. He doesn't need to come down, but the author deliberately says the Lord came down to see this tower. It's kind of like God is saying, oh, you're building this very impressive tower, are you, that reaches to the heavens. Well, I've got news for you. I'm in the heavens and I can't see it. 
tell you what, I'm going to come down. Let me come down. Let me have a look. Where? Oh, there it is. Let me get my magnifying glass out. Wow, that is very good. Well done. Now that's really, really impressive. There's this mockery going on. It's typical of the very man-centered view that we have of the world and of things that we do. It's a little bit like when we say, do you know the Great Wall of China is a human construction that is visible from space? Well, not from most of space, it's not. It's only from that little bit of space above it. Most of space, we're not visible. We're a speck. It's that man-centered view that we have of the world, a very egocentric, egotistical uh, view that we have of the world. So God comes down and he throws them into confusion. Now, how did that work? I don't know if you ever wondered how that kind of worked out in practice. It doesn't tell us. It just goes from there, confusion, to scattered. Um, you know, were they kind of going, uh, pass me the brick, pass me the brick, passez-moi la brique, passez-moi la ladrillo. Oh, we don't understand each other. Let's, we better get out of here. I don't think that's probably quite, not quite how it worked, but probably what did happen is that because there's sin in the picture here, the presence of sin and the corruption of the human heart, probably with the, the difference comes in and there's conflict will emerge and racial division will start to emerge and so the people stop building because they can't anymore and they scatter. God disperses them. You will fill the earth. You will do it. And so we see how nations are established. We see how diversity is established and how that was always part of God's plan one way or the other. You know, the dispersal of the people, the scattering of people, the differences between people, that wasn't the judgment. That was the plan. The judgment was the fact that it was done instead of in union and unity, it was done with confusion. And that's had knock-on effects throughout history in terms of conflict and racial division. So we see the origins of nations here, but we see a lot more. Because we see into the heart of man. We see the pride and the arrogance, the worship of self, the desire to not only be like God, but really to replace God. It was there before the flood. Sin went into the ark with Noah. It was there after the flood. And it's very much alive and with us today. And you can sum this attitude up biblically with one word. And that is Babylon. Babylon. Babel, Babel, was translated everywhere else in the Bible as Babylon, the city of man, the city that always opposes God. We see in chapter 10 a character called Nimrod who goes on to build many great cities in the style of Babel, one of which is Babylon itself. So Babylon is a physical city and would be a physical city, but it's also a spiritual symbolic city. It's a symbol of human pride and human rebellion and human sin. And throughout the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Babylon is referred to as the embodiment of arrogance and pride. We see in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's standing on the roof of his palace surveying the city, and he says, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, it's just brazen self-glorification, which God actually deals with pretty dramatically in Nebuchadnezzar. But it keeps on going through the Bible, this, this theme, until Revelation 18, where we see the final judgment of Babylon. There's this thread of Babylon and the spirit of Babylon that runs through the Bible, the city of man. But I've subtitled this today, The Tale of Two Cities. Because in the very next chapter of Genesis, in chapter 12, through Abraham, God starts to call into being another city, 
that will come and oppose Babylon, the city of Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, the city of God and of the people of God. Again, it would be a physical city, but it's also a spiritual, symbolic city, the people of God, the dwelling place of God. And the Bible is the story of these two cities and the conflict between them. Now, we see the spirit of Babylon everywhere around us. It's everywhere. In the Count of Babel, we, um, what we see they were doing, what they were achieving, actually represented enormous technological advance in the way they used these bricks, these kiln-fired bricks, because they didn't have stones. On the floodplain they are on, there weren't any stones. That would be the normal building material. But they discovered how to make bricks with what they had, this kind of clay-like stuff and the post-flood deposits, they discovered how they could actually make these bricks. And actually, it was a huge advance in technology. It meant they could build bigger and better and more quickly. And this ziggurat was an impressive structure. It's this enormous building. Babylon, through the ages, was seen as a place of technological and cultural advance. We see, you know, it was an advance, seen as an advanced human society, a picture of power and human wisdom and expertise. Well, fast forward to the 21st century, and when you think about what humans have achieved today, it is astounding. It really is astounding. When you think of the advances in things like travel, that you can be on a plane and get to the other side of the world in less than a day, that's astonishing compared to not very long ago. Uh, when you consider the advance in communications, when you consider the power we have in our pockets, most of us, with something like this, it's phenomenal that we've split the atom, that we've walked on the moon, that we're exploring Mars, that we've got electricity, that computers, internet, uh, the advances in medicine, let alone art, literature, music, and the beauty and the glory of those things. Humans are amazing because God made us that way. We have achieved some amazing things, but how much of it honors God? How much of it is for the glory of God? We see how technology can be used to improve our lives, to make lives better, and it can be used for great evil and to really curse our lives. I would suggest that most, of, most human achievement is really about making a name for ourselves. It's about replacing God. Look at what we can do. We're so clever. We're so advanced. Look at what we can explain. Hey, we don't need God anymore. We want to replace God. You know, there are some areas of medicine that we're going into now, it takes us into dangerous territory. Dangerous territory of being a creator rather than being created. It's the spirit of Babylon. It's the self-centered, self-glorifying, arrogant spirit of Babylon. It's working together to achieve things, but it's for our own gain, just like at Babel. It's using our God-given gifts to achieve something really great, but without concern or regard for God. It's all about self-interest. Do you know what? Even so-called unity that we might have at various times through history with different nations. Today, it's the United Nations. But this so-called unity always comes back to self-interest. In the end, that's why we have wars. It's why we have conflicts. The attitude of man is that we are in control of our destiny. We have the solutions. If we work together... All our problems will be solved. Well, they haven't been yet. And they won't be wherever we work together with no regard for God. We've seen every political and economic philosophy and system from capitalism to communism promising heaven on earth. But none of them can deliver because they're filled with corrupt human hearts. Because when we work together, whether that's within a nation or across nations, with no regard 
for God, oh, I mean, we can achieve some impressive things, certainly. And the desire for unity is good. It's good to desire unity, but ultimately it's doomed to failure because it's a unity that's built on sin and unbelief. It's built on making a name for ourselves with God marginalized, unnecessary, and irrelevant. And we continue to believe that we are the solution to our own problems. I mean, I would have thought the 20th century, the bloodshed, the wars of the 20th century would have shown us that that's not the case. But we seem to continue to believe that we can be our own savior. It's the arrogant spirit of Babylon that we see all around us. We see it in the prevailing attitudes of the day. Probably one of the clearest examples that I saw of that recently is an interview between Philip Schofield, you know Philip Schofield, amiable presenter chappy, and a teacher who had been suspended from their post for misgendering, if that's a word, a pupil for saying girls to a group of girls of which one was choosing to identify as a boy. And he had apologized for it. He had made a mistake. He apologized. But he happened to be a Christian. And he had a particular view about the whole gender issue. This was one of the worst interviews I've ever seen. He was harangued. He was... He, was, he wasn't allowed to speak, and, he, and words like abhorrent were used. In the middle of the interview, Philip Schofield said, I just find this abhorrent. The guy is sitting right there. He's being as polite as you like, and he's being called abhorrent. And, and another one was, let's get back to the 21st century. And what a phrase that is. It's the, how, many peop, how many times do you hear people say, it's the 21st century after all? What does that mean? Arrogance. You know, I want to show, I want to be seen as such an enlightened and tolerant person that I'm going to express my tolerance by being utterly intolerant of anyone who has a view that doesn't match my own. It's hypocrisy. Sheer hypocrisy. There's no problem with having differences of opinion. We have differences of opinion on things all the time, but it's the sheer arrogance to think that the latest fad, the latest trend in human thinking, man's thinking, what man has effectively been thinking for the last five minutes is the enlightened view. That's the only way that you are allowed to think. When history shows us that, it's absolute rubbish. History would show that the popular enlightened thinking today will be different tomorrow. It will be seen as foolishness tomorrow. That's what history shows us. The anti-God wisdom of this world, oh, it's imposed on people with some force. But the truth is that it's always going out of date. It's constantly shifting. It's fundamentally unstable. We see that attitude all around us. But Babylon is aggressive, that's the thing. Babylon wants to destroy Jerusalem. It is anti-God, it hates God, it hates the church, it hates Christians. There's this picture in Revelation 17 of the woman representing Babylon being drunk on the blood of the saints. Babylon is constantly attacking Jerusalem, firing weapons at the city of God. But let us not get offended by it. Because actually Jerusalem fights with different weapons. Where Babylon is about being self-serving and self-exalting, Jerusalem is about being self-giving. And the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. The people of God are called to fight with different weapons, the weapons of service, weapons of love. Jesus tells us how to do it. He tells us how to be the true Jerusalem, the true people of God. He says when someone offends you, you turn the other cheek. You don't seek to destroy them. That's the attitude of Babylon. You wash one another's feet. You serve one another. You love your enemies. And you do good to those who persecute you. you. He's saying you are to actively love those who you really don't like at all. 
And you stand up for what is true, even when that's deeply unpopular with the world, but always with love, always with humility, loving those people who are going to be most offended by you standing up for the truth. Not battling against them. We're told the battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual battle. You help the poor. You help those in debt. You help the most vulnerable. You help the most broken. You love them. You serve them. Those are the weapons that the people of God are to fight with. Babylon seeks to bombard Jerusalem with attacks, missiles from outside Jerusalem. It's like it seeks to burrow deep inside Babylon in order to take it apart from the inside. It's a bit like that film Armageddon where they've got to go up and drill right down into this meteor that's going to destroy the earth to get the bomb in it to explode it from inside. Otherwise, nothing will have any effect. We don't kill people and harangue people and abuse people for not believing the gospel. We serve them. We love them. We show them the gospel. We don't fire our weapons at them and our barbs. and We don't stand looking out of our city, standing on our city walls, looking out upon the city of man, shouting, we're coming to get you. We get in amongst them, serving them, loving them, exposing idolatry and showing them that the ways of God are so much better than the ways of man. And so Babylon starts to crumble from the inside. Now, do we do that because we're better than the world? (sighs) Not a chance. That would just be the arrogance of Babel, but in another form. No, it's only because of the gospel. It's not because we're better. It's because Jesus is better. And he empowers us. It's only because of the power of the gospel that we can even consider living like that. It's not our strength. Remember the central point of the account of Babel, the pivot around which the whole story turned, which brought about this complete reversal of everything that man had planned, but the Lord came down. Well, this month we're celebrating another, but the Lord came down. Emmanuel, God with us. God clothed in flesh, but this time coming not to deliver judgment, but to take judgment that we deserve, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, to make us free to be citizens of the city of God. And it changed everything. The gospel changes everything. It brought about a complete reversal of what happened at Babel. It is the central pivot point of the whole of history around which the whole story of humanity and the world, the earth, turns so how is Babel reversed in the gospel well people are designed they're created for worship we're created for the worship of God we're created uh, for mission and we're created for community all three of those things were lost at Babel as man decided to worship himself instead of worshipping God make a name for ourselves instead of a name for God man decided to not go out on mission and fill the earth with God's glory but to stay safe inside And because those two things were lost, then community was lost also as the people were confused and scattered by God. But in the gospel, in the power of the gospel, all three of those things are restored because when we respond to God, we start to worship him again instead of ourselves. He causes us to be missionaries again. He calls his people into his mission to rescue the human race. And as a result of that mission, a new community is formed, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, A gathering of missionaries, a new community in a world that has lost community. It's a complete reversal and it's glorious. It is wonderful. At Babel, people who who should have been able to understand each other, they suddenly found that they couldn't. But in Jerusalem, at Pentecost, 
At the birth of the church, as the Holy Spirit is poured out and they speak in different languages, people who shouldn't have been able to understand each other suddenly found that they could. It's a reversal of everything that happened at Babel. And this simple, ordinary group of people, they would become the undoing of Babylon. Because you realize that Babylon stands condemned. It stands condemned. The result of this conflict is not in doubt. As we read in Revelation 18, there's an angel shouting with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Woe to you, Babylon city of power. In one hour, your doom has come. The result is not in doubt. Babylon will be destroyed. God's mission succeeds. The earth will be restored. In Jerusalem, we see the final reversal. In the city of God, in the church, we see the scattered and divided nations of the world being gathered into one. We see it here. It's amazing. Being gathered into one again, united in our diversity, the one new man, the the new humanity that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. The dividing wall of hostility is destroyed, culminating in this glorious vision of Revelation 7. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is where history is going. Babylon will be destroyed and we'll see this glorious vision before the throne of God of people, tribes, tongues, languages all together in unity. As Jesus says in Luke 13, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. The enduring truth of the gospel that truth which has remained unchanged for thousands of years, that stands in stark contrast to the shifting sands of the wisdom of man. The world offers many things. It offers many ideas, plans, solutions, but ultimately offers no hope. The gospel offers the sure and certain hope that everything that is wrong with the world will be made right. It will be made right. It's glorious. It's wonderful. But there is a challenge for us big challenge for us it's very easy for us to think that Babylon is just out there and we're safe inside here you can see where I'm going with this there's an individual challenge and there's a corporate challenge here in your own life do you honor God do you strive to obey God's word or do you strive to obey the desires and the motivations of your own heart Is God pushed to the margins of your life so that he's of no practical relevance to you? Yes, you go to church. Maybe you even go to a small group. But the rest of the week, God may as well not exist. Who do you live for? God or yourself? Who are you living to make a name for? God or yourself? What towers are you building in your life? What are the impressive things in your life? Gifts, intelligence, prosperity, achievements, successes, but underneath it's just tower building with God completely out of the picture. As I stand here and preach, am I seeking to glorify God or myself? That's the question I have to wrestle with every single time. Every time I do this. Am I trying to build something that honors him or me? Donald Miller said, the most difficult lie I've ever contended with is this, that life is a story about me. Well, how about you? 
Are you honoring God? Glorifying God with everything you have. Everything that he has given you, all is a gift from God. Or is your life filled with mini Babels? Proud, self-exalting achievements. Remember the center of the story. That pivot around which everything turns and everything is reversed, but the Lord came down. The psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Oh God, help us, help me to not labor in vain, but to honor you with everything. And for us as a church, you know, we're, yeah, we're, we're a growing church, but how are we growing? You know, everybody who comes here, we rejoice over every person who is added to us, every one of you. But we want to see more people saved. That's why we're here. We want to see people saved and baptized. Look at these seats. All these empty seats here. They represent people's lives who are not yet saved, people who are heading for hell. How are we going to get these seats filled up? We will always face the temptation, like we see at Babel, to stay safe inside, to prioritize comfort, our own comfort, to be cozy, to be together in one place. Because it's lovely to be together. It is good to be together. But in a holy huddle, in our Christian bubble, taking no risks and making no sacrifices for the dying people out there, those people who are walking in darkness. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. The call is still to go. The command to fill the earth with the glory of God, that's still there. That still applies to us. We are a sent people. We are a worshipping community of missionaries. We are undoers of Babel. The call is not to build a big church with its top in the clouds, to make a name for ourselves and where we can safely gather together all in one place. No, the call is to build a church of thousands in this town for the glory of God for his glory and for his glory alone, to see ordinary people changed by Jesus to change the world, transformed by Jesus, to see a town transformed by the power of God through the people of God. And if you're a member of this church, if you have committed yourself to this church, that is the mission that you have signed up to. That you are a partner in that, you're a stakeholder in that mission. So if I may be so bold as to ask, what are you doing about it? personally, individually, what are you doing about it? What are you doing to to get people in these seats who don't currently know Jesus? You have been blessed to be a blessing. There are people who God has brought into your life. You might be the only Christian they know. How are you loving them? How are you serving them? How are you blessing those around you, those outside the church? How are you showing them and telling them about the gospel? You know, I cringe at the times where I have passed up the opportunity, and there have been so many of them, to talk to somebody about Jesus out of fear. Do I really love that person so very little? Do I really love them so little? Person who's made in the image of God. Person who God loves, who God gave himself for, but is heading for an eternity in hell an eternity of separation from God. Do I love that person so little? Do I love God so little? Do I trust him so little that I'm not willing, I'm not prepared to take a risk of looking a bit silly? Am I so self-centered that I'm more concerned about my name than about God's name? 
What are we doing about this? All the Babels of this world will fall and they will fail. Empires come, empires go, scattered by God. Institutions come, institutions go. Alliances come and alliances go. Philosophies of man, they come and they go. They all get scattered by God. Only the church will be left standing. Only the city of God stands forever. And so let us be who we are called to be. A sent people with the mandate to fill the earth with the glory of God. Let us be a people of risk. A people of great sacrifice, willing to be uncomfortable in order to reach a dying and perishing world. Let us love God's reputation more than our own. Let us love others as God loves them. And let us partner with Jesus Christ in undoing Babel and in building his church in High Wycombe to the glory of God. Amen.